And this is the third and final part of Revel with a Cause, Remembering Phoenicia Medrano, an episode of the Voices for Nature and Peace podcast. Question five. Can you sum up Finn's message to the world? Two words. Plant back. It really did boil down to that. Everything she said and did could be summed up just like that. All the long monologues, every field trip to dig roots and collect seeds, each jab or compliment in conversation, it all pointed to the same guiding principle, and that is reciprocity. She used to say that everyone was a motherfucker, because we're all fucking over Mother Nature through our ecocidal ways, and that the least we could do was give a reach-around. That's slang for when you're fucking somebody up the ass and you reach around to get them off at the same time. It's a completely obscene bit of slang that she constantly used, but rarely explained, and it was hilarious to me to hear people repeating it without knowing where it came from. I'm sure she enjoyed the same thrill. Another way to put that concept is that, by living on this earth, we inevitably have impacts. In fact, it's impossible to avoid them. So that being the case, we have an obligation to give back as much as we can. Pick berries, and then shit someplace where the seeds might germinate well. Pick fruit, and then save the pits and bury them with gravel near watercourses. Dig roots, and do it when the seeds are ripe, and will be sown into the disturbance you make in the soil. For everything you take, give something. It's a delightfully simple calculus, and if embraced as a guiding principle, it has the power to transform life, both individually and collectively. That's it. Plant back. Can you sum up Finn's message to the world? Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's kind of it right there, but it was, but she delivered it in like, uh, it was more of a an imaginative uh, fuck you. It was like, it was like a giving. Her message was a giving back to this what she called the walks and beauty way, like giving back to life in a culture that uh, is primarily predicated upon uh, unleashing the forces of death upon the world. And not right. that not to say that death is a bad thing or a negative thing, but uh, unnecessary like uh, massacre level of death like i wouldn't say that's part of necessarily the natural cycle of things it does happen every so often like an asteroid strike or whatnot but we've elevated like mass uh deployment of state-controlled violence or threat of violence to a modern art form so i think her message was resist don't don't follow every rule that you're given um go ahead and act upon what you feel are your actual principles like figure out what it is that you're that you're that you love and and then fucking do something about it you know regardless of the consequences that's that's one of the things that i got from Phoenicia's life where she was like i'm doing this because it's the only thing i can do it's the only option left to me in this culture because i'm not going to do that i won't do that and she would say that working for money was a sin and so on and so forth so she had some kind of interesting way she would she would uh underpin her her philosophy or her her um her life way with kind of like biblical references and phrases because that was part of her life too she had been in the in the church and she had mastered how to use that she called that selling them back their own bag of shit Mm -hmm. 
you know, to take what someone someone's coming to you in a in a false way, and you take their falsity and you wrap it right back in the same shit they just gave you, and you hand it back to them. And then they're obligated if they're really telling the truth and they believe their own bullshit. They're obligated to do the thing that's uncomfortable for them to do or that they didn't want to do because you're putting them on the. She would put people on the spot. She'd be like, "Oh, you care, baby? Well, come on, come on, sit down. I want you to go to the grocery store. We, we're getting low on food. I know you got a little bit of money, baby. Come on." She would test it. To see if you were if the game you were spitting was real, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. That's a little convoluted. But for me, her message to the world was was do something real. You know what you're doing when you when you're doing something that's not real and that's not in the service of life. You goddamn well know it. So wake the fuck up. You know that was it. That was her message. <laughs> wake the fuck up. Yeah, you're yeah. a bunch of little spoiled entitled. Kids playing in a bathtub full of shit water, baby. She's like, drain the motherfucking tub, baby. Scrub it out. Put some fresh hot water in there. Make some bubbles. Have some fun with it. But, but don't pretend you ain't bathing in shit, baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I don't think that I can claim to to really speak for Finn and to really speak her message in total, but I, I feel like I can fe- speak to a part of the core of her message, um, which is the only way to be fully human and deserve our place on this planet is to be fully engaged in a life-giving way of reciprocity at all times. And there is no equivocating that. There is no middle ground. There is no mitigating a motherfucking. Um, there is either life way or death way and no in between. And that, like I said in the story where I first met her, um, we can't save the planet. We can't fix it. But we can choose to not use the devastation as an excuse to continue being a motherfucker only that we can strive to have some kind of conscience in our existence. If we're going to live. And she would say sometimes, you know, if you're not going to do good, you might as well kill yourself. (laughs) Um, And that's, And that's how I felt when I was 14 and I tried to kill myself because I didn't know any better because I didn't know that there was anybody like Finn in the world. And I didn't know um, how much was left of indigenous people and and their practices and their cultural um, striving for, you know, continuity and revival and all those things. But I feel like another thing that, that touches the heart of her message is, um, the promise that she made to me when I first met her before I hung out with her out in, in the world on the hoop, she invited me out there and she said, she made me this promise. She said, come out with me on the hoop, um, spend some time with me in the wild garden, come see for yourself carpets of food. You can't take a step without walking on food and I'll show you a life way that's still left, that there's, that there's still some out there. And she said, and then the promise she made me was come out, come out with me and see it 
And when you do, you'll be ashamed of yourself sucking on Babylon's tit when your mother's breasts are so full and aching to feed you. And she was right. She promised, she promised me shame. <laughs> she promised me that I would feel ashamed. And, and it was the most medicinal version of shame possible, you know, that, that that's really that moment, that moment of truth, as it were, is that most people don't even know, like, like, like me, when I was 14, I thought humans were just parasites at this point, And, and I might as well kill myself because we're just killing the planet. And I might as well just be one less parasite. And, um, and she offered this promise of truth, but you couldn't really understand it. And most people can't really understand it unless you actually see it. Unless you actually go out there, put your hands in the dirt, smell the dirt, you know, taste the biscuits, um, engage with it personally and create personal relationship. And for some people, they'll never go. A lot of people will never go, will never even look. They'll look away before they see it. They don't even want to see it. And some people will go and they'll see it and they'll feel that shame and they'll go running from it. And some people will go and they will see it and they will feel that shame. And at the same time, they will see that shame as opportunity. They will see the opportunity in that moment and they will see the promise and the gift before them. And they will feel the inherent obligation to that gift that once you see it, you can't unsee it. And the only way to not just feel ashamed is to engage, is to build that relationship with that truth and live in that reciprocity in whatever way you can. And one of the things that um, breaks my heart every day um, is that one of the reasons me and Finn um, understood each other is that um, by the time I met her, her body was really breaking down and I live in a chronic pain body. And um, so for me to imagine living full-time on horses in her way is really unreal. Um, I would not last very long that way. My body would not let me. Um, I would be especially on my own, I would be debilitated very quickly and I would probably just die in it, um, which isn't that bad, you know, all things considered. <laughs> but um, but that the other part of, of that message was everyone will come up with every excuse they can to not do it. So don't have excuses, you know. Don't have the fact that you can't go 100% at once be your excuse to not do it at all. And she, and she told that to me, and I saw her tell it to other people too, is, you know, you're afraid of horses. You don't know anything about horses. Don't let the fact that you're not going to go out full-time on horses overnight stop you. Mm-hmm. Don't let that be your excuse. Do Get out there by any means necessary. Do it by any means necessary. Live in reciprocity feed that which feeds you, give back to life by any means necessary. 
if the only way you can get out there is by car, get out there by car. And that's what she was doing at the end of her life in her truck, you know? Um, and that in a way was a middle ground that was actually accessible to me, pun intended. Um, <laughs> um, that by the time I met her, she was doing it in a way that actually was realistic to my ability. And, um, and it was also that thing that by the time she was on her way out, she was still trying to preach this life way, but she had a hope in death. She was looking towards death. And I spent, I've spent most of my life wanting to die and not really seeing much reason to want to be alive in an absolute sense, in a real meaning. And that's what Finn had to offer. That was, that was the big gift was here's a way of meaning to be in the world that, that is just that it's just a way of meaning and a truth an unequivocal truth. You want it in the censored or uncensored version? Oh, use whatever four letter words you need to. (laughs) Oh man. Quit being a bunch of ecocidal cunts and motherfuckers and stop trying to paint yourself to be beautiful. If you're a beautiful motherfucker and basically translated from Finnish, that means give back more than you take. You know, like she always talked about you're you're still a motherfucker, but if you're going to be a motherfucker, give your mom the reach around you know, in Finn's language. And, and like, she's like, if you're going to be the motherfucker, just give her the reach around, which means basically like give back, making reciprocity a priority in your life, reciprocity with the land. And I liked how Finn always, she would always say like, so many of these people are activists, but then once they delete their Facebook or Instagram, they're no longer activists, you know? And she always was like, really had a lot of antipathy for the what she called beautiful motherfuckers you know so people that are still motherfuckers and by motherfuckers she just means like people that are fucking the mother earth who paint themselves to be beautiful on social media you know and basically have this like this vibe of saying all of like the trendy virtue signaling phrases and all of that and you know or like people who are super spiritual but their spirituality is rooted still rooted in our like culture of colonization and genocide so they're still motherfuckers they just look more beautiful being motherfuckers and i always really appreciated like that perception of that you know and that's why i was like wow finn really is a genius like that that's so that's so true and that is something that really deserves attention is that but my issue with a lot of finn's message is how in so many ways unrealistic it is and this is what i mean i don't mean that reciprocity is unrealistic i mean that finn's lever was guilt and that's how she got to people was through guilt and conscience you know so she used a lot of like virtue signaling and moral high ground and in my opinion false moralities to justify her behavior 
you know, not to say that what Finn was doing with the land and her planting and her projects were amazing. And I'm so thankful that she dedicated her life to do that. But she was basically also like, if you're not living out on horseback on the hoop, uh, then you're just dead motherfucker who is just deserves to die and should die. And I didn't agree with that. Summing up Finn's message to the world, when you ask me that, it's complicated because in integrating my experience with Finn into my life after hanging out with Finn and trying to make it my own instead of just being a little Finn bot, and because that's what would happen with a lot of people, and there's still these people out there that are just like little Phoenicia robots, you know, they just have nothing original of their own to say, they're just basically like, vomiting back up what everything Finn said. And it's like, they're, they're just like little mini me's of Finn saying what Finn said and doing what Finn did. And I'm just like, no, no fucking way. That's like not my path. And that's not what I'm going to do, you know? And I've had to do a lot of intense work inside myself to integrate the truth in like the bundle that Finn had and to sift out all of Finn's trauma because the thing about Finn's message to the world was that there was a message in there, but the messenger who was Finn had a lot of trauma that got delivered with that message. And this is why, yeah, this is the thing about like having that compassion for Finn and like really loving her and caring about her. And I'm so thankful for her and for everything she did and the time I got to spend with her. But it's also been really intense for me to basically uh, integrate this into my life and to basically get a handle on the little thin voice that has been stuck in my head ever since I hung out with her and kind of deprogram and unschool from Finn's mode of thinking, which is very informed by her childhood trauma and her trauma throughout her life. And the beautiful thing about Finn's message and the bundle that Finn passed on was that it, it was not unique to Finn. It was not something that Finn just made up and came up with, you know, like the bundle that Finn carried and passed on and the message that she was a messenger for is ancient. It's, it's, it's as old as the earth. Finn was just a very unique carrier and messenger for this bundle and message. And, Uh, my process with integrating it has basically been purifying it of Finn's trauma and, and seeing it for the bundle. It is not for the bundle that Finn kind of claimed and blended up with her own biases and traumas and misanthropic tendencies. And that has been hard because like, I've been trying to basically take this and do what Finn never could and make this more accessible to people You know, I don't believe that, like, I'm not going to, like, walk forward with a lot of, like, that trauma and, like, misanthropic mindset that Finn carried this bundle with. I want to, like, make this accessible to people, everybody from, like, soccer moms and people who live in suburban areas and cities to people who are, like, out on the hoop on horses or out with goats or backpacking or just, like, living out on the land doing this. You know, I want it because I don't believe in the whole one part of Finn's message that I really have come to see as a false dichotomy is her whole thing of like wild and Babylon. And you're either in wild or you're in Babylon. 
And what I've realized is that wildness is a construct created by Babylon. There is no separation between wild and Babylon, you know, like wildness and the American wilderness and the whole frontier mythology and uh, the separation between man and civilization and wilderness and like man and wild and man and land. That is a biblical Babylonian civilized thought construct that I think perpetuates the very injuries that Finn was acting against. And it makes it basically just inaccessible. And for so many people who are really inspired by Finn's message, but they're like, oh, but I'm, I basically like they're everything that Finn ever hated. So they're like, oh, well, I can't do this because I, you know, live in a town and I go grocery shopping or this or that. And I'm just like, no, it's not black and white. You know, it's really not black and white. And the paradox of it was, is that Finn knew it wasn't black and white, but she made it black and white. And I think even though she knew that she knew it wasn't black and white, I think the part of her that preferred it to be black and white sometimes overrode the part of her that knew that it wasn't black and white. And this is like the mixed bag of Finn. She was like just a walking paradox and a walking contradiction. You know, she really did hold the sacred and the profane and the both sides of this weird spectrum so well, but it was also really confusing to have to like live with that and on her part, but also the, on the part of people who have spent time with her to really make it their own and integrate it and not just repeat it as Finn said it and not like really, really think about it and digest it and like, think about what this means for you in your life within your unique circumstance and your sphere of influence, you know? So yeah, Finn's message was in one word, reciprocity. That That is the beauty of Finn's message was reciprocity. If you re- bubble, boil it down to like the most basic principle of it, of like what not being a motherfucker means, it means living in a reciprocal way with the land, living, not living on the land, not living off of the land, but living with the land, a part of the land. Like we are a part of the land. We are an ecological being. We are a keystone species and hell we're, we're a hyper keystone species who can introduce and eliminate other keystone species. You know, we have a huge responsibility and her message was that we are failing miserably at that responsibility and that that sucks and fuck us for doing that. And that I agree. I agree with that. You know, it's like, fuck, this is getting out of hand. We, we, we do have a responsibility and, and guilt was Finn's lever to get people to spring into action. But the thing about that guilt that backfired on a lot of the people who have spent time with Finn was that she put this pressure and used social media and her whole, like, she was always talking about mind control and social engineering. And this is stuff I've spent a lot of time like deconstructing in myself and, and, and deprogramming from, because when you hear it enough times from Finn, it's like advertising. It just sticks in your head. And it's almost like you think it against your own will. And that's what kind of like, I was like, God, Finn, you know, it's like, knock that shit off. You know, it's like, I did not consent to that. Cause I, I do believe that she knew what she was doing and doing that. Like she, Finn had a gift for, psychology and predicting people's behaviors and manipulating people it's like she was anti-capitalism but it's almost like one of the basic tenets of capitalism snuck into her work and into her work ethic which was the protestant work ethic which was if you're not wild tending and planting back every single second of every single day then you're a worthless piece of shit and that was the vibe that finn had and that was like basically like part of hanging out with her was basically like you need to be doing this all day every day 
and you need to be posting it on Facebook and Instagram all day, every day. And that whole idea of Finn that like it puts this pressure on you to basically measure your self-worth as a human by like how many seeds you're planting all the time. It, it kind of feeds into this guilt complex that she really likes to, to use to leverage people into like doing this work. And man, I'm not about doing this work from a place of guilt. You know, I think that acting from guilt just, you know, it re- it really just in the long run will create the same injuries that it feels guilty about and is not ultimately healing, you know. I hope that kind of answers that question because to sum up Finn's message, it is reciprocity and just living in a good way with the land and thinking ahead for the next generations. You know, but I just had to answer that question in that long, complicated way, because for me, that question has been a very big part of my life since I've hung out with Finn and trying to like make sense of it and like not in my own way and integrate it into my life in my own way. And to realize that people are going to have to do that for themselves to really be functional in their lives with this and not just carry on Finn's trauma. I mean, for me, what came through was the message of give back to the earth more than you take. Plant seeds, kneel down and dig, um, you know, stop consuming and stop listening to the fucking bullshit that you're fed. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, fuck you, fuck me. I mean, those are like the, <laughs> the core, I would say. Um, but I think her biggest message was plant back um, reciprocity, the reach around, you know, hoopla, being carry your own weight, always come bearing gifts, give everything its opportunity for life as this sort of um, three-part whole, like all of those pieces have to function together for there to be true harmony. Um, She really deeply believed in a gift economy. She was really essentially Mm anti-capitalist and she was very generous, extremely generous. Mm -hmm. She never charged me a dime for any of the things she taught me. It was always just, gift economy i definitely gave her a lot but she still would have taught me without me giving her anything yeah yeah i mean i would sum up her message as plant back and fuck you (laughs) basically you gotta feed what feeds you and uh, energy follows action not ideas yeah, I feel like she was she was often pointing out uh, all these idealistic or idea-based motivations or good intentions, but then how the actions didn't follow it. So, yeah, that your like actions and your real presence in the world, like which what you do, where you put stuff, that's what's going to be around you. So you got to feed what feeds you. So. Part of that requires taking a look at ourselves and how how we're living or what's feeding us and see if it actually is. 
you know, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and then decide which ways we need to feed that. I think it could be summed up as broad as that. You know, we could say planting, but I don't think that was the extent of her message. Yeah. Not just planting. Not just planting. That is a beautiful, oh gosh, that's a beautiful um, vehicle for all of that. I -hmm. mean, in part because you're working with the plant people who are just so Mm -hmm. incredibly giving and uh, dynamic in their response, their ability to respond to the different things we do. Um, And it was such a simple message to just plant back. And I think that it's just genius to have something so simple. Like we're in a, a world today that's so full of ideas about exactly how you're supposed to restore things or how you're supposed to do this that people are paralyzed to do anything. Because, again, they're not the authority. So they need to figure out all the rules first in order to even move. When it's really their soul is telling them to do something. Because they're alive. They feel a response. They feel the world around them. They feel the disharmony and the harmony. So... Yeah, you got to feed what feeds you. Yeah. Question six. Do you have a memory of the last time you saw Finn or communicated with her? The last time I saw Granny was in August of 2019, seven years after I met her and in the same place as our first encounter, some particular table land in eastern Oregon. It was seed harvesting season, and the plateau was full of yampa and kush seed, I was traveling with Nikki, as I had been in 2012, and with Granny with her newest students, one of whom, Gabe, is interviewed in this podcast. People were gathering seed by the pillowcase, and a spirit of camaraderie prevailed for the most part. I skipped most of Granny's sermons, and in so doing, enjoyed more the interactions we did have. I had learned this over the intervening years, how to find that sweet spot where I could absorb some of her knowledge and wisdom, but not be overwhelmed by the full three-ring show. Though her physical condition was clearly in a state of rapid deterioration at this point, she complained much more about pain, and her smoker's cough hurt just to listen to. She was still able to collect more seeds faster than anyone else. I would look up from my own gathering to see her stooped figure moving from spot to spot with focus and grace. The day we were going to leave, Granny had us pose for photos with our bags of seeds. She was clearly proud and wanted to share that with the world. She reminded everyone to use hashtag wildtending when posting to social media. When we parted, she looked me in the eye and said, Keep writing. You're good at that one. Given how skeptical she was of nearly everything that wasn't directly planting back, I knew this was a meaningful statement on her part, and not an empty compliment. Sincerely impressed, I thanked her, wished her well, and we left. I didn't know it would be the last time I would see her, but I wasn't surprised that it turned out to be. She was already ready to go at that point. Feeling that, I was present in that final meeting. I can still clearly picture that last conversation and see her eyes looking into mine. It's a moment I believe I will always remember. I think the last time I saw her, she had come to the Methow to kind of like hang out with, because Katie Rose and I had decided, or I decided I was going to do some horse travels, and I invited Katie Rose along, like, you know, an extensive chunk of time. And Finn showed up in town, and she was going to, you know, she showed up, I guess, a little bit before a gathering we have called Saskatoon Circle, and she was going to go to that and teach wild tending, or rather her, her apprentice, Conrad, did most of the teaching because Finn wasn't in any shape to be walking up big, steep hills showing people biscuit roots. Right. And so I saw her, you know, when we were out traveling, but the last time I saw her was when she sat up there. Her friend Mary had come to town, and she sat up one of her little, you know, 
tarp shelters, their oil tarp shelters in a piece of forest service land adjacent to the site where the gathering was held. So she had her own little kind of space away from things. People could come and pay tribute and visit granny and bring her some pot or whatever, you know, and say hi. And so that's what I remember as I came up with, with the animals I was packing or just riding animals over. I wasn't packing anything. And, um, and granny was there and I stopped and said hi. And it was, it was a nice little visit. And she was just like, you know, granny always had something to, she'd look at your outfit, you know, and she'd always have something to say. Like, mostly encouraging, or she'd just be like, don't, no, baby, don't do that. It ain't gonna work for you. <laughs> <laughs> and she, one thing she didn't like that, that I remember her, her bringing up was she was like, she didn't like the high line thing. You know, and I've done high lining is, <clears throat> it's a thing that recreational packers do and outfitters do it too, that take people up in the mountains with horses and mules. And it's like, outfitters actually don't do it very often. It's like stringing up a line between two dead trees and then you, you tie a lead rope onto your animal and you, you put them on that line. So they just stand there. Essentially, right. for it's a nighttime thing for all night, and then in the daytime you graze them. But she would be like, "No, baby, thank you. you need to you need to do the fence, baby. You gotta have these motherfuckers out here eating all they want to eat. You don't put them on a goddamn. Let me tie your ass to a tree for six, eight, ten hours. See how you like it, baby." <laughs> nice. um, so that's the the last time I saw her was there when she was camped there, and I just remember. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't. But it's like with someone like Granny and with the way that she lived her life and the, her health and stuff, it's like pff, that could, shit could happen anytime. You don't know. Right. That's one thing I do regret is that I didn't. <clears throat> I don't know. I feel like I should have. I should have set aside some time to like go out there and and hunt jackrabbits in the desert with her or something. Like mm-hmm. I could have. I could have done it. You know. But it's like whatever. Hindsight is twenty twenty. I'm 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 grateful that I did get the time I did with Granny. And we always wish maybe that we had gotten a little bit more, but. With Granny, you know, sometimes a little bit was enough. <laughs> sometimes a little bit, it's like eating a really a delicious piece of cheesecake, but it's like so rich, you know, that yeah, it's like you yeah. think you want the whole thing, but it's like, nah, a couple bites is good. Yeah. You might want more later, but you better give yourself some time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <coughs> That's hilarious. There's such a thing as too much of a good thing. Right. And in my life, Granny definitely was a, she was a good thing. She brought some like... A, a completely different perspective than I would ever even have thought to, and I and I took her goddamn pack string on, which was crazy to do. But I'm glad that I did it because I've gotten to have a lot of fun with those animals, and it was like it was a good lesson that we can pick up really huge things, and we can put down part of it, or we can put down all of it, whatever works. I put down part of it enough that I could be like, oh, okay, I got this now. And Granny would be like, baby, you need to work with that young horse, baby. She's gonna get to it. You're gonna get out of your range. But she was right. <laughs> Usually when Granny said something like that in the realm of like, especially about horses and her life, not that she was some, she had her way of doing it, right? But she knew when something just wasn't right totally, she'd, she'd say something. She could just hear a sound at night. She'd be like, horses is out. <laughs> she'd hear something. It's like the ho- some horse that's out free, you know, touches nose with a horse that's in the fence. And that, that squeal, they made, there's a certain particular high-pitched squeal horses make when they see each other in that way. It's not always a squeal of delight. And Granny just knew. She'd be like, she'd look at your setup, you know. She'd look at your camp, and be like, oh, that you gonna have problems with that, baby? Because she'd done it all. Yeah. You know. The last time that I saw Finn in person, um, she came to visit me in Chico, and I brought her to town at the request of a friend of mine. Allie Matters Knight, who is Machuta Maidu, 
um, who are the original people of the land that I live on that Chico now occupies. And I had told her about Finn and I can't remember exactly how it came up in conversation first, but I sent her the, um, the trailer from the film that John Golly is, is making about her. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I told her a bit about Finn and uh, Allie offered to come up with money to pay her. And I said, she'll refuse your money. It's also pretty serendipitous that timing ended up um, that Finn came right at Thanks Taken Day. Mm. And so for Thanks Taken Day, we had a planting day um, that several people came to. Um, and we planted an area that um, Allie has been sort of resurrecting for the last 15 years. It used to be a literal garbage dump mm-hmm. and is now a beautiful park full of native plants. And so we did a planting day there and we got, we planted all kinds of stuff. And um, half the time Finn was just kind of sitting there in her, in her chair holding court, you know, so different folks would sit with her and, and listen to her and talk with her and then go off and plant a little and other people would sit and listen and, you know, and it was really, really beautiful. And we got to, spent some time with Allie. We went over to Allie's house for, for dinner um, with her family. She has uh, five daughters, four of whom are still at home. And, uh, and we had this big dinner and I brought Buffalo meat from uh, my last Buffalo meat from Buffalo bridge. And uh, we had this feast that felt right to have for things taken day, you know? And Finn was amazing. This is one of those things is that people would freak out. Like Finn would talk shit to people about having kids. Right. But, uh, and about, you know, being breeders or whatever. Um, but she was really great with kids. Like people thought, you know, a lot of people who didn't see her with kids thought she might, you know, say horrible things to children. Um, but she was amazing, um, with Allie's kids and with a lot of kids. And that was like, I warned a lot of people before Finn came to town about, you know, her being vulgar and all these things. And I was kind of worried about other people and how they would receive her and how they would respond to her. Um, but I wasn't really worried about Allie and I kind of knew that they were going to love each other and, and they did. And watching the two of them meet was like fireworks, you know, it was like watching a beautiful sunset unfold. It was music. It was just, it was just right, you know? And that's really like, you know, if I get to be proud of anything, um, (laughs) that's, you know, one of the things that, um, has been my greatest honor in life was really to connect those two with each other. And it is really special that that's the last um, time that I spent with Finn was, um, was doing that. You know, she, she hung out and she was, uh, she was kind to people. She was on her best behavior. She still called people motherfuckers, but, (laughs) um, but she was nicer than she would normally be. There's, a lot of people who throw around the word love, you know, and um, sometimes it feels like it's true and sometimes it feels kind of shallow. And um, I told Finn that I loved her all the time and, and she told me that she loved me. And of all the people in my life who've ever said that to me, it had some of the most meaning I went to California last winter for work. 
and uh i was in ukiah for a while and one of the people who really helped take care of finn and you know was always there for the supporter was sharky and before kelly and i were going up to this job we went by sharky's house and finn just so happened to like have showed up there at that time and it had been a long enough time between like when I saw her last on the table land and that time that it was like, like seeing her for the first time all over again. And that's what I loved about Finn. I was like, yeah, I just, I just need you in small doses. You know, it's really nice to have you not, maybe not even small doses, but like good, even good sized doses with a good break in between or with regular breaks because, you know, she's just such a hoot to be around. And we laughed so hard and had a lot of fun and hanging out in California that, that last time. And it was really good to hang out with her and just appreciate her. And Kelly and I wanted to interview her for the podcast because Kelly seemed to know, too, that Finn didn't have long to live. And then we... uh that was the last time I physically saw Finn, but the last time I talked to Finn really made me sad because um, it was like on Facebook or something <laughs> where like Finn was always really good to me ultimately and always treated me with respect and always had my back. But then she pulled this stunt when I was at Winter Count in Arizona where she kind of just like flipped the switch on me and was really mean for like no good reason. And I felt like really butthurt about that. I took it pretty personal and I was just like, man, that's just Finn. That's just like what she does. But I love her anyways and I'm thankful for her in my life. But it wasn't too long after that that she that she died and i felt bad too because when finn died i had a little bit of hard feelings just because of it was just really unnecessary it's like what what she did i felt pretty sad and i felt like when she died i i got over that resentment pretty quick but i felt bad that um when she did die that there was a little bit of bitterness I had other than that, you know, I'm just thankful I got to see her one last time in California and laugh our asses off and listen to her stories. Cause she was the funniest person ever. She was a really gifted stand up comedian and was really good at making you purple on the face with laughter. And the last time we were together in California, we laughed pretty hard. So the last time I saw her, it was actually really sad. It was at um, the Saskatoon Circle Ancestral Skills Gathering that Katie Russell organizes. Mm -hmm. And I guess that would have been in the summer of 2018. And she'd given away her horses by that point. And I just remember seeing her, like, when I first, like, I went primarily because she was going to be there and also to see Katie again. And again, I was thinking of maybe writing something about Saskatoon Circle. And um, I was only there for three days and two nights. And I spent them 
mainly with Phoenicia. And there was something very drained about her. It was sort of like I really felt that a lot of her power had kind of seeped from her and she seemed diminished somehow. She didn't have the same energy. And we, we just spent a lot of time sitting together and chatting. And I didn't realize that lunch didn't come with the ticket. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I didn't really have any food. And, um, she basically shared her staff lunch with me instead of going like, I'm not hungry. I'm like, you have it, you have it. And I was like, no, 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 you have it. No, you have it. And it was all like that. And and I could tell she was probably hungry, but she insisted on me having her food, which was incredibly sweet. And, um, and again, we just kind of laughed about a lot of things. And, but I came away feeling like that wasn't the Phoenicia I first met. Like I, I definitely noticed a, a sort of, she was a lot sort of calmer, less, uh, less aggressive and feisty in a way. And it kind of made me sad. And then, but, you know, so we kept up. I didn't know because I don't live out there anymore. I'm back in in the United Kingdom. And um, so I didn't know when I would be seeing her next. So I felt incredibly sad saying goodbye to her that time, thinking I might never see her again. And then, you know, we kept in touch via Facebook Messenger. And then the night before she died, we'd had a little exchange because I saw that she put something on Facebook about having had a heart attack. And so I messaged her going, Oh my God, like what is going on? You know, are you with a doctor? Like, and she's like, yeah, yeah, no, it's fine. I'm with people. And, and we had a little sort of exchange about how she was feeling. And, and then I said, well, you know, get some sleep and hopefully everything, you know, you'll be feeling better. Like I didn't know how serious it was. And she sent me a little sticky with a little angel with kisses and saying, you know, good night. And then uh, and then I saw on Facebook that she died like hours after sending that, um, which was also my, my daughter's birthday. And uh, so every time my daughter has a birthday, I think of Phoenicia, which is sort of kind of lovely in a way. And uh, yeah, that was that was the end. And I, I, I felt, yeah, like so many people just completely kind of shocked and incredibly sad sad that I couldn't be there as well um yeah so that was that was it really thank you I really appreciate getting your take on all these questions well thank you and it's lovely just talking about her just yeah I mean no one ever really goes do they until they're completely forgotten I don't think she's ever going to be forgotten It was pretty interesting. This was pine nut harvest. We've been doing pine nut harvest ever since she first brought me out to Nevada to gather pine nuts in, I think it was 2000, 2010, mm-hmm. I believe was my first time. And then um, little by little, she was spending more time in Hell's Canyon and I was holding down a pine nut harvest every year in uh, Nevada. And she would come sometimes if she could, she always wanted to, but it, it was pretty far and she didn't want to always, she, you know, she wasn't always able to leave her animals. And, and so, well, after she stopped being able to ride horses and gave in to living a more hybrid life where she had a truck and was traveling around, she kind of showed up a lot more in Nevada. She loved Nevada. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was both surprised and not surprised to have um, found her or she, she found us. She claimed that she didn't know we were camped there, but she pulled up to the spot where we were in Western Nevada gathering pine nuts. There was about maybe a dozen of us out there. 
And toward the end of our camp, like maybe mid to late October, um, we had been there for a month or so and people were starting to trickle out and Phoenicia kind of rolled up and camped pretty much right next to us, like at the next turnout. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we started, uh, you know, pretty quickly realized that she was there. She said she didn't know we were there. And little by little, we would have these little visits back and forth. This would have been the October of 2019, I believe. Let's see. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 2019. And um, so, so not too long before she died. So she came out and she had a few friends with her that were meth heads. And as far as the rumors go, and as far as people who hung out with her in the last years of her life, supposedly she was doing a lot of meth. And that time she definitely was. Um, I would come visit her in camp and she'd be grinding her teeth and her eyes would be bugging out. And she'd be like, I know I look like a fucking crackhead. And, you know, that's what she said to me. And I was like, mm-hmm. it's okay, grandma. I know what you're into. It's, you know, I still love you. It's fine. Um, and her friends, they were making these giant, these like huge bonfires that we could see above the trees because I think because they were tweaking, but she had a strategy of making these burn scars and she would plant into them after they cooled down Mm -hmm. um, as sort of like a dead zone that she could start fresh, you know, like start her own colony of wild foods from. Mm -hmm. And, um, and she, yeah, that was one of the strategies she kind of employed later in her life. So that's what they were doing. Had this huge fire that was like kind of alarming. And then she started little by little coming into our camp. Once her tweaker friends left, um, she started sort of, you know, kind of sideways popping in and just being like, what are you guys doing? And, and it was real friendly at first. And, and I was kind of happy about it. You know, I kind of really missed having her in camp in some ways. And so she was playing real nice. And we had probably three or four days where she would little by little spend more and more time with us. And we invited her to come eat with us and we fed her some meals and, and it was sweet. And then the last day she rolled up first thing in the morning, she was, she had her camp all packed up into her truck and she just started ranting at us about all this stuff that I don't really know where she came up with it, but about how our camp was a faggot separatist camp which is not true because about half of the people in our camp weren't uh, even queer identified and, and that we were like appropriating it, which is also not true because a bunch of the people that we work with and that were in our camp were indigenous or not white people and different ways. So we have a pretty diverse camp going on, but she just really decided she needed to fight with us. And one of my friends who was there, he just started you know, fighting back defensively and it turned into such a big blow up for like maybe 45 minutes. Oh no. It was mm-hmm. really bad. Right. And it left everybody just really shaken. And I, I was trying to deescalate and it just, it really didn't, it really didn't go anywhere good. And she eventually just left real frustrated. And I walked mm-hmm. her out of the camp cause she had parked a ways away and I walked her to her car and the whole way we were walking, she just, she just listed everything that had gone wrong in her life. And that I was the reason why, that I was the reason why her life was so fucked. It was my fault specifically. And I actually spent maybe three days really thinking about that. Like, did I do that to her somehow without realizing it? And I just couldn't make sense of it. I tried really hard to understand 
you know, the stuff that she accused me of was real specific and none of it was my fault. It was all just stuff that mostly she had done to herself. Mm -hmm. And it was also things that had happened randomly just by chance, you know, things that were unexpected. And um, that really hurt me. You know, I, it kind of sucked. And at the same time, I realized she was like in a post meth um, meltdown, you know, that she was coming down and she was like lashing out. And she sent me a few little messages after that, that weren't really apologizing, but were like joking around and being kind of cute and funny. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And then after she died, um, I had a bunch of really vivid dreams about her that felt mm-hmm. like they mm-hmm. were a kind of a resolution for me. And mm-hmm. I don't, really claim you know it's her spirit coming to me i don't really have like specific beliefs about how that all works but i do believe that that i had a really powerful experience of her passing and those dreams were really important to me in terms of um just sort of letting go of some of the stories that i've had um that i think were kind of keeping me bound to some unhealthy patterns that I learned from her or things that I felt guilty about. And one of the most beautiful things is when I came here to New Mexico and I was considering moving my hoop efforts in this direction, I was walking through this beautiful Canyon right next to the property that I ended up getting gifted. And I was walking through this Canyon and I just kept, I found all these choke cherries and wild plums in this Canyon. And I was just thinking like, wow, I just feel like Phoenicia would would love this. And then I was also thinking, but rationally she would be just criticizing the whole thing and like talking shit about it and how it was all bullshit. And my friend who was with me turned to me and she says, I just really feel like Phoenicia's with us right now. And I had just been thinking those thoughts. Mm-hmm. Thought it was so interesting. And we were walking down this canyon towards there's this little hole where the water collects and there was um there was this just past when we had that thought and we kept thinking about her that whole time in the Canyon. And when we got to that watering hole, um, there was this perfectly polished, very clean white coyote skull that was just sitting there staring right at us. <laughs> and we just thought like, okay, that's it. You know, it just felt in a way like that was about a year after she passed. So very recently. Uh-huh. And, um, And it felt like in a lot of traditions, a year is about the time that it takes for a person's spirit to kind of transform and go through all the processing that needs to happen for them to really become the ancestor spirit that's kind of good and helpful to the people. And it felt kind of like that, like she's kind of come back to me in that way. Like there's a lot of forgiveness in my heart for her. And I feel like she's really forgiven me too. This is kind of a two-parter. Mm-hmm. So the last time I saw her was kind of by accident. I mean, partially on accident. Uh, it was the summer before she died, so 2019, mm-hmm. end of summer. I hadn't planned on going all the way to the west again, to the west coast. I was over here in Colorado, New Mexico. But I had uh, met this Brazilian woman, and we decided to get married. Uh, so... I said, okay, just tell me when, I'll come over there. She was in Northern California. And uh, so I was I was chasing this Brazilian woman uh, halfway across the country to go get married. 
just because. And um, that didn't end up happening. She wasn't ready. And uh, I decided that I came all that way. I should go do something. And it was seed season for Yampa. And um, Phoenicia was up in eastern Oregon, uh, this beautiful garden area. And she was with some younger people who we talked on the phone. And she said, oh, these guys are these guys are great. They're a real thing. They're really into the planting, you know. Because she knew that I, I, I really picked up on the planting. I, I like that part a lot. <laughs> it's enough for me, actually. Um, so we went up there. And we had a group of people. You were there, too. Uh, so it was kind of an accident. I hadn't meant to go out there. And I'm really... Uh, grateful that it happened that way because that was the last time I actually saw her in person and um, it was uh, Yampa seeding season in this beautiful big ancient Yampa garden Uh, so we were digging and collecting seeds and um, she seemed pretty peaceful that time like she had a couple of young men with her and um, they were super enthusiastic and I could feel from her that she knew that you know she really liked meeting the people who just wanted to plant and collect the seeds. She really, that was a certain place in her heart that she had for meeting people like that. So it was a very nice time I had with her. I didn't feel tension. I just felt a lot of um, a clear pathway for just loving her there. And it felt mutual. So that was the last time I actually saw her. And I'm glad to see her so happy. Um... I also uh, helped, I think I ended up paying for it, um, to help her fix her truck. I'd helped her with a series of trucks after she got off of the horses so she could keep moving around and sharing with people. And I think she enjoyed it. I think it was a good um, consolation prize for not paying on the horses. But uh, yeah, her truck at the time, oh my God, she was using rope to hold the tie rod end on because the ball joint had completely snapped in half. <laughs> ah, I, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, it works. It was working for a while. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we went and got that, got that fixed for her because that seemed a little unnecessary to continue that way on the types of roads she was on. Um, that was the last time I saw her. The last time I communicated with her in voice, um, I had gone to Thailand last March, right before the pandemic stuff happened. I hadn't left the country in 13 years, so it was funny timing to go. But um, I saw on Facebook a message about her having just had a heart attack. And um, so I was messaging with her just being like, God damn it, Finn, I want to see you again. And she said, I know, darling. I think she died two days later. And at this point in time, the pandemic was in full swing. (laughs) Uh, I was understanding that my mom and I should try to find a plane back or maybe not be able to for a while. So we had decided we were going to go back and we booked a flight, but we still hadn't packed anything. And we had like a 13-hour trip of a plane a train and another plane to get back to the city we needed to get to to Bangkok in order to get on three planes to come home. So it was a big, big journey. We weren't quite committed to it, but a lot of anxiety going on at that time. Um, But that morning we woke up, we were supposed to leave to um, go back to Bangkok. 
we hadn't packed. And the first text message I got was that Phoenicia had passed away and that my flight was canceled. So, yeah, I just pretty much lost it. It was very painful (laughs) that she was actually gone. Um, It was painful, and there was also a great sense of relief. Um, I know that Finn had been ready to go for a while, and she'd kind of been actively working on that with eating crappy food and chain smoking, like three cigarettes at once. <laughs> like uh, uh, She would talk about it a lot that she was just done. Uh, so I'm bringing this out because I, I feel like there was a communication that happened there. Um, I found out she died. I completely lost it. It had been very clear in Thailand where I was. And all of a sudden, there was like these loud-ass fireworks that just started happening a block away. Basically, I don't know, within 20 minutes of finding out she had died and starting to have all these intense emotions. These loud-ass firecrackers, and I just knew that it was her. (laughs) And then for the rest of that day, it fucking poured rain. Like, pouring rain. And I just felt her there in all of these waves. And I really do feel like it was a communication. That was the only rain that happened for the next month. And it hadn't been raining the whole month I'd been there before. (laughs) So, yeah, I would say that was my last communication with her. Something I just am feeling like saying right now in this conversation is that I dearly loved Finn. I really did. I know she was a very confrontational uh, creature for a lot of people, but I feel very glad that I was able to just find a a lot of love with her. I know other people did too, Um, but since she's died, there's just been a lot of people coming out who had a problem with her, you know? And I understand. Everybody has a different relationship, but I just feel like saying that, like, even strong personalities, like, people can find a way to love them without, like, losing themselves. Like, there was a lot of genuine sweetness in Finn, and I feel so grateful that I got to see that, along with the, like, terrifying Kali, whatever, destructive, recreating energy. And, um, yeah, I miss her a lot. I think about her every day, and what a beautiful gift of an introduction it is um, that just planting the seeds of the plants that you love is enough. It's enough to do that. And if we can start from there, maybe we can find a better way of being here with ourselves, with each other, and with the rest of the natural world. That's it. Voices for Nature and Peace is produced in the Gila River Valley, New Mexico, USA, on land that we acknowledge is illegally occupied Apache territory. The intro music is Zero G Yogi by Big Z, with narration by Kelly Moody of the Ground Shots podcast. This outro music is Trip A, also by Big Z. Commercial break narration by Nikki Hill. To become a financial supporter of this podcast and to gain access to members-only content, visit patreon.com slash colibri, K-O-L-L-I-B-R-I.
For more information on Radio Free Sunroot programming, please visit RadioFreeSunroot.com. Thank you for listening. May you find joy in your own nature and peace. I went out and met up with Michael Ridge in 2018 when he was nomadically on his horses. And he had been sort of picked up, for want of a better word, by this Christian couple. He saw him with his horses and really wanted to help him. And so they showed up where he was. He was staying at this horse camp near Madras in Oregon. And I was staying in the camp with him. And anyway, and this Christian couple showed up and then overheard Michael and I talking about Phoenicia. And they were like, oh, my God, oh, my God, we can't even hear that name. We can't even hear that name. Oh, my God. And I was like, what, what, what happened? And they said, oh, well, we, she stayed with us once. We invited her to stay with us. And she was having a shower. And then she came running out of the bathroom, stark naked and said, want to see a tranny dance? (laughs) 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 They said they were deeply offended by this and kicked her out. (laughs) 